All right, let me go ahead and pray uh, to get us started, and then we can dive into the ordinances. Um, so let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for um, yeah, sending your son to die um, and to defeat death on our behalf. Thank you that he gave us these two ordinances as a church that we're going to talk about today. I pray that you would help our discussion to be edifying and that you would bless our participation and observation of the ordinances today and um, over the next few weeks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So maybe just to start off a little bit uh, with uh, some definitions, kind of an introduction into the ordinances. Uh, by the way, before we get started, obviously it's a smaller group right now. I love participation, questions, uh, discussion back and forth. Um, so don't be shy uh, about that. You also see on the handout here, there are some uh, scripture references. We won't be reading all of these. Uh, some of them are just for future study if you'd like, but I will be asking for volunteers to read a couple of them. So. Again, not very many people, so volunteer multiple times. <laughs> that would be appreciated. Hey, how's it going? Just handouts there on the music stand. So just to get started with uh, a quick definition of ordinances, this is just a very basic, uh, you could think of a much fuller one than this, but I'll give kind of a one sentence definition and then kind of get into maybe three or four attributes of ordinances. And then uh, we'll jump into baptism and then the Lord's Supper. So just a quick definition, uh, you could say an ordinance is a sacred rite or ritual given to us, the church, by Jesus. And that's sort of a basic general definition there. Uh, four kind of attributes of, of the ordinances, just to run through by way of introduction. The ordinances do not save, but as we rest upon the truth proclaimed in them, we draw near to God and he draws near to us. And God uses the ordinances to work in us and sanctify us to be more like Christ when we partake uh, of them through faith. Um, secondly, ordinances are God-given images or actions. Another way to put it is they are visible depictions of Christ, um, which engage our five senses. They're the gospel on display in the waters or in the elements. They symbolize forgiveness of sins, salvation, and ability to commune with God. So they're symbols of those things. Uh, a third thing that the uh, attribute of the ordinances, they serve to visibly mark us out as the church from the rest of the world. We participate in baptism and the Lord's Supper as members of covenant community. And then finally, they remind us of Christ's death and resurrection for us. So they, they regularly remind us of the gospel. So as you can see on your handout here, uh, there are two ordinances given to the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Maybe just to get some uh, participation, get the creative juices flowing. What are some similarities and differences between the two ordinances? So we have the baptism and the Lord's Supper. What comes to mind for you as similarities between those two ordinances or differences between those ordinances? It can be super obvious or more deep either way, but anybody have thoughts on that? Yep. They both picture that Christ died for us. Yeah, they're both pictures of Christ's death for us, Dave. You say that, and in a way, both look to the resurrection. Baptism, obviously, because we're coming up out of the water, but with the Lord's Supper, it's until he comes again, and we'll be, made, you know, we will, our new bodies, resurrection bodies, will be with him. Yeah, so looking forward to his, looking yeah. Forward. Anything else? Similarities, Andrew? In terms of differences, yeah. Yeah, I think that's the key difference. The one-time initiation into the church is baptism, uh, but Lord's Supper is an ongoing, regular, frequent ordinance. Any other thoughts on similarities or differences? I think some other similarities we've already hit on, I think, the key ones, but they're both, they both use natural elements as signs of salvation for us. Um, so they're, they're Jesus' commands, but they engage our physical bodies, right? Our physical bodies go into the water. We physically eat the bread um, and drink the cup. Um, so God uses these natural elements to remind us of spiritual truths. They're pictures of participation in Christ's death, looking forward to his coming. Another one, they're both commanded by Jesus himself. Uh, so they're, they're given to the church, but they're also commands. And they help our minds to dwell on things that are above and to yearn for heaven. And then differences, yeah, there's sort of the obvious, right? One involves bread and, and juice or wine. The other involves water. Um, we'll get into sort of the specifics here, but I think the frequency of when when we engage in them is, is probably the key one there. Yep. So they're both for believers. Yep. 
yeah, that's cool. Yeah, thanks, Dave. That's a good point. Yeah, both for believers, for those who didn't hear that. So, yeah, let's go ahead and move on to baptism. And we'll hopefully save, uh, only use half the time on baptism, the other half of the time on the Lord's Supper. So uh, we might not be able to cover everything on both of these topics in this one class. Um, but another way to keep us engaged here, uh, you'll see printed out on your handout, this is the DRBC Statement of Faith um, on baptism. And then on the reverse side, we've got the Statement of Faith for the Lord's Supper. So I think... Um, everybody here are, are members or visiting, but uh, if you are a member, you've agreed to this statement of faith on baptism. And so I think something that could be helpful here to just uh, remind us of what baptism is and what we've agreed to is to read this out loud together. And so if you are willing to do that, uh, let's go ahead and read the statement of faith on baptism on the first page here. We believe that baptism in water is the delightful duty of all believers upon their profession of faith. Baptism should be done by immersion into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to show forth our faith in the crucified, buried, and risen Savior in a solemn and beautiful symbol. Baptism symbolizes our death to sin and resurrection to a new life and is a response to the command of Jesus. Baptism is performed once upon one's profession of faith and is required for church membership. Thank you. So baptism, one way to put it, baptism is an outward sign of obedience in response to an inward work of salvation. This class last week, Merck uh, taught on creeds and confessions, and one of the confessions he mentioned multiple times is the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith, and they have a definition of baptism I'll read here. It says, baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ to be unto the party baptized a sign of his fellowship with him in death and resurrection, of his being engrafted into him, of remission of sins, and of giving up into God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. So just a few different definitions of baptism here. I think one thing to start with is just the importance of baptism. Why is baptism important? Would somebody mind looking up Matthew 28, 19? Matthew 28, 19. While somebody's looking that up. Um, yeah, I think it's important to baptism is both a command that Jesus gives to us, but it's also a gift of God to us. That is an outer sign of our inner salvation, and it's meant to be a gift to us. We have Matthew 28, 19. Can you go ahead? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Thank you. Yeah, so great commission, familiar verse to a lot of us, um, but this is a command from Jesus, right? So why is baptism important? I think you can always start with it's commanded by Jesus. We're supposed to make disciples of all nations. And upon making those disciples, we're supposed to baptize um, all those people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so, you know, we see this as a command of Jesus. But I think, I'm not sure exactly everybody's backgrounds here. Obviously, there are lots of different types of churches with different views on baptism. But one thing that I think I've seen and I think has been the experience talking with other people in either non-denominational churches or Baptist churches, the importance of baptism has been watered down. Um, no pun intended there, <laughs> of, uh, but just, yeah, there hasn't been as much of an emphasis placed on it, either as a requirement for membership or as just something that you get around to if you have to, but not really seen as a command of Jesus um, for believers. And so, uh, yeah, and I think part of this comes from, you know, the, the true statement, right, that we're saved by grace alone through faith alone, and baptism doesn't save you, and all those things are true, right? But it can be dangerous if that leads us to ignore the commands of Christ, including to be baptized. And so maybe a question to pose to the group is why, why do you think people in uh, churches like this, either Baptist churches, non-denominational churches, why do you think people have, um, why do you think people don't get baptized or some people don't get baptized or the importance of baptism has been, has been watered down in these churches? Why do you think that is? Anybody have any thoughts on that? Part of it stems from a lack of commitment and an understanding of the importance of the local church. Mm. So it's not maybe taught, but it's also, I think, connected. 
into not really understanding why, you know, what it's picturing and, and why that's important because of the, because of Jesus saying that part of our following him is being part of the church, his body. Yeah, so a lack of emphasis on being part of a local congregation, joining a covenant community, that sort of ends up leading to not really seeing the point or importance of being baptized. Yeah, I think that's definitely right. Any other thoughts? Kind of. I, I guess, like, culturally, it seems like there's uh, less importance on uh, ceremonies. Hmm. It just kind of seems more and more odd to go through a certain step of, or to go through certain steps. Um, so it's, like, less importance taken out of it. So I guess kind of culturally, it seems like it's just it's kind of more shed in an odd light, in my opinion, anyway. Yeah, I think that's definitely right. Yeah, it's more countercultural. And I, it's, there are different reasons for that. I think one of them that I was thinking of is it's almost like a functional Gnosticism, which I know that's a big word, but it's, it's ignoring the importance of what we do with our bodies. So it's almost this, well, if I believe in my heart, that's all that matters. So it doesn't matter that I obey Christ with my body. It doesn't matter you know, what I end up doing. The sort of error that we see in Galatians and other, you know, it's sort of been problems and errors throughout <laughs> all of the New Testament. But yeah, just downplaying the importance of following Christ's commands as long as you, know, you have a sort of a subjective belief. Um, well, a couple of other thoughts, you know, some of it may be shyness or apathy. This could go to culture as well, not wanting to, to go through a ceremony in front of people. I think another one, you know, we're going to see two baptisms today after the service. And what are they, uh, the two people who get baptized, what are they going to do right before the elder, uh, Josh Hart, I believe, uh, baptizes them? What are they going to do in front of the whole congregation? Testimony. Yeah, testimony. It's point D there. We'll talk a little bit more on on your handout. But yeah, they're going to proclaim the work that Christ has done in their life, right? And you need boldness to do that. Um, You need uh, confidence in the work that Christ has done. So a lack of boldness. Um, these are just sort of some of the reasons uh, for that, and we could talk more about this a little bit later. But I guess one other question is probably going to be a simple one for most of us in the room. But who who should be baptized? Dave mentioned it earlier, but who who should be baptized? Anyone? Anyone who wants to participate in the ceremony? Only believers. Only believers. That's right. Can somebody look up Acts two forty one? While you're looking that up, I have one more quote from the 1689 Baptist Confession. In answering this question, who should be baptized, it says, Those who do actually profess repentance towards God, faith in and obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ, are the only proper subjects of this ordinance. Does somebody have Acts 2.41? So those who received his word were baptized. They were added to that. They were added that day about 3,000 souls. Yeah, so what's, what's the order there? What happens before the baptism? They received his word. They received his word. Yeah, that's right. And if you look a couple of verses earlier than that, if people are still turned there, I think it's verse 38 um, where Peter, they ask what they have to do to be saved. And again, we see the clear order here. They need to repent and be baptized. And so in, in both of these verses, we see believers, those with credible professions of faith, those who have repented of their sins and receive the gospel. Um, those are the ones who are getting baptized. This sort of leads into point C here. It's about how baptism is a picture or a symbol um, of death and resurrection with Christ, of participation with Christ in his death and resurrection. One more verse here. If somebody could look up Romans 6. It's verses 3 and 4 is actually uh, what it should say here. Romans 6, 3 and 4. We're just going to talk about the symbol or the picture that baptism is of our union with Christ and our spiritual death and resurrection with him. So back there, blue shirt. Thank you. So we see a pretty clear picture here. There's many other scripture passages that we could have chosen from here. But baptism, by immersion under the water, it's meant to be a picture of the gospel. It's meant to be a picture of our spiritual death and resurrection um, to new life with Christ. 
and to remind us of what Christ did on our behalf. So in the statement of faith there, I don't know if you noticed, but it says uh, the preferred mode of baptism, it says baptism should be done by immersion. So in light of what we just read, why, why do you think our church's position is that baptism by immersion is important? In light of that scripture we just read. most rightly pictures those three aspects of what it symbolizes. You know, death going down, burial being under, and resurrection coming up. Yeah, yeah I think that's exactly right. It's, it best captures the sign and significance of Jesus' work for us and the spiritual reality of our death and burial and resurrection with Christ. It's also, by the way, what we see happening in the New Testament. Uh, and so I think just looking to scripture for patterns and practices. So Matthew 316, you don't have to turn there, but it talks about when Jesus was baptized, he was raised up out of the water. Um, and that's when God the Father um, said he was well pleased with him. There are many other examples through the Gospels um, and Acts where there's baptism by immersion. So this last point here, uh, a testimony of repentance. Uh, we've already sort of been talking about a lot of these, these points here. Uh, but could somebody look up Galatians three twenty six to 27? So we see baptism as a public profession of the saving work Christ has done in a believer's life already, and that we are covenant members with him by faith, not by an external action, but that the baptism symbolizes the spiritual reality. So can somebody read Galatians 3, 26 and 27? This, this gets to the connection between faith and baptism. Hannah. Yeah, thank you. And then Colossians 2, uh, 12 also talks about how we're buried with him in baptism and raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. And there's many other passages that we could point to also in the, in the apostolic epistles, especially, but talking about baptism and faith as being connected. And so you've got this connection between baptism and faith. You've also got this command. We've already read some of them to repent and believe and then be baptized. And this, you know, by the way, is it was probably, you know, the biggest differentiator between how our church views baptism and how sort of reformed Pado baptists view baptism. So talking about like Alexander, Alexandria Presbyterian or other churches that, you know, we partner in the gospel with, um, but that hold to a Pado baptist view. Probably the biggest differentiator is that we think that they're based on scripture, there needs to be faith and repentance before the baptism. And so maybe just to get a little bit into, you know, Pado, Reformed Pado-Baptists, they believe uh, that baptism in the New Testament closely parallels circumcision in the Old Testament. Circumcision was an outward sign or symbol um, that, that happens for all saints and for their children, and that they could then look back on later in life. Um, and so they think that like Old Testament saints circumcise themselves and their children, New Testament saints are baptized and their children are baptized as well. Reformed Pado-Baptists typically don't believe that baptism saves or takes away sin, but it points to a gospel, points to the gospel, and they're supposed to look back to the ordinance and trust and believe in the promise of it. And so I think it's important not to, you know, when we're discussing infant baptism, Pado-Baptism with others, I think it's important not to, you know, mischaracterize what they view, um, how especially Reformed Pado-Baptists view it. Um, but respectfully, you know, I think our view from the scripture is that that's that's not right because this kind of bullet point here is that baptism is tied to repentance. So Acts 2.38, we already read it, said the command was to repent and be baptized. Another example, uh, uh, the last bullet there, Acts 8.12 and 13, this is Philip, he's sharing the gospel and it says that his hearers believed and then were baptized. And we just see these, this pattern repeated throughout the New Testament. Um, and just a couple of couple of other thoughts on that, and then happy to take questions as well, but uh, you know, often I think Pado-Baptists will point to passages in the New Testament that are so-called household baptisms. Examples here, I don't think they're written down, but you can put down as notes if you want, but two examples are Acts 18.8, Acts 16.35-34, where the gospel is shared with the jailer and his whole household, or is shared with uh, Crispus and his whole household, and it says they believed and were baptized, the entire household. Uh, I think it's important to note there, though, that there's no, there's no indication that there were infants that were part of that household that were baptized in those passages. And also, both of those passages are clear, 
make clear that they believed in the word of God and then were baptized. So the entire household believed in the word of God and was baptized. So 18.8 says, Crispus believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many believed and were baptized. Uh, it's a similar in, in Acts 16. So those are you know, some, some responses to some of those uh, viewpoints. I think the most important thing, as we, I was discussing with Dave earlier, it's looking to scriptural examples. We, just, we don't see any examples in scripture of infants being baptized, but we do see believers um, being baptized in response to their faith um, in Christ. And so there is, there is obviously connection, some connection, right, spiritual connection between circumcision in the Old Testament and baptism. They are the signs that God uses to mark out his covenant community. Um, but the new covenant operates differently than the old covenant, right? It's, it's for um, believers um, who have been called by Christ um, and those alone. So one other thought here on baptism, and then we'll just open it up to questions if anybody has any thoughts or questions. But one other thing uh, that was mentioned earlier is just the importance of being part of a local church. Um, baptism is meant to bless the congregation. For the person being baptized, it's an initiation into the local church, into covenant community through Christ. And then one, one, one uh, for those of us who have already been baptized in this room, who get to observe a lot of baptisms at this church, and we'll be observing two of them today, Lord willing, um, is that there, I think there's spiritual significance to observing baptism as well. It's uh, one quote from a book that I read. It's, it's a rehearsing of the gospel for the observer and a means of grace throughout our Christian lives as we watch with faith the baptisms of others and renew in our souls the riches of the reality of our identity in Christ pictured in our baptism. So I think as we, as we watch, not only are we welcoming people into our covenant community, um, and that's important in and of itself, but we're also remembering our baptism, we're remembering afresh the gospel, what Christ has done for us. So just an encouragement as we're observing baptisms not to do so, sort of tuning out, um, but, but to really you know, dwell on the spiritual realities that we're seeing before us. So before we turn to the Lord's Supper, are there any questions or thoughts, uh, comments on, on baptism? I know there's many, many more things that we could cover, but so does anybody have any questions? No questions. Covered everything. Yeah. <laughs> what is uh, your perspective, or I should see it, the church's perspective on when, particularly a child, yeah. Yeah, this is Yeah. Yeah, it's a good it's a very good question, something that I've been wrestling through, the church has been wrestling through. So again, just to repeat, the question is what about sort of children, older children um, and that have a profession of faith, when should they be baptized? One thing that I will recommend as a disclaimer is on the church website, there is a shepherd statement on this issue. So if you go to the church website, go to resources and then shepherd statements. There's one, it's called, I think, Baptism, Lord's Supper, and Children. Um, so I'll give a couple of thoughts. They're mostly drawn from that shepherd statement. So go and look to that and or talk to an elder more about this. Um, but yeah, there's no, in that shepherd statement, there's no specific age limit. One thing I'll say is just as a matter of church practice, I think the youngest person to be baptized and voted into membership is 14. I think that's the youngest that our church has done. That's not to say that that's a limit. In the shepherd statement, it talks about different things to look for in a child before being baptized. One of them is a credible profession of faith. Another one is that the parents in the congregation can affirm the genuineness of their faith through pattern and practice of repentance of sin over time, of pursuing God through scriptures, private Bible reading, um, other outward signs uh, of maturity. Uh, it is a case-by-case -case basis, though, and the shepherd statement actually explicitly says if you, if there are thoughts that you know maybe your child is ready for that, if you think they kind of qualify under the different factors to look for, is to go to an elder and talk about it in, on a, a sort of case-by-case -case basis. Uh, another requirement that they have in there is that the child understands what they would be doing in the ordinances, understands the importance of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Um, and there are different, you know, it's it's case-by-case, -case, I think, because there are different contexts, right? So in our context, you know, it could be the case, right, that, that children are, feel more pressure to profess faith um, just because that's what their parents and families and friends are all doing. Um, and so that's why I think there's a very sort of measured, uh, let's see over a period of time whether the profession of faith is credible. Um, so those are some thoughts. I'm happy to take any pushback on that. But again, there's shepherd statement uh, for that. And yeah, it's a, it's a difficult question that I know the elders have, have wrestled through a lot. So.
Any other thoughts or questions? Yep, Andrew. Yeah, so the, that's, a, that's a good question. I think, you know, the practice in our church has been elders. I think, I think one of the reasons for that is the way that our church does it in front of the congregation as part of the service and, and initiation into our covenant community. Um, there it is, the gospel is on display in the baptism and the elder often will say a few words proclaiming the gospel and, and teaching the word to us um, as a congregation. And so I think because of that, because of how our church does it, uh, it makes the most sense for an elder or an overseer to be doing that at our church. I don't, I don't think there's anything specific in scripture about that. So I don't think, you know, a baptism would be, you know, like I, I think I'm pretty sure our church will accept a previous baptism if it's done by sort of a parent or a respected uh, Christian sort of older person who, so I don't think that's a requirement by scripture, but that's why our church does it the way we do, I think. All right, well, I know there's a lot more we could say on that, and I'm happy to have discussions uh, later, but let's move on to the Lord's Supper so that we don't have to, uh, to rush through this um, because obviously very important ordinance as well that we partake in more frequently, as we mentioned earlier. Um, so again, like we did at the beginning, uh, if for those uh, who are here who have signed on to the Statement of Faith, uh, I've got printed out on page two here, the Statement of Faith on the Lord's Supper. So for those who are willing, let's go ahead and read this together to remind ourselves of what we've agreed to. The Lord's Supper is a commemoration of Jesus' dying love through the sacred use of bread and the fruit of the vine and is a response to the command of Christ. This time of remembrance and anticipation of his second coming should be taken by believers in good standing with a gospel-preaching local church who prepare for the meal with self-examination to ensure holiness before God and unity with the church. The Lord's Supper is administered regularly by each local church. So if you, guys, if you have Bibles, why don't we all turn to 1 Corinthians 11? Outside of the gospel passages recounting when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 11 is, is sort of the main place in the New Testament where we get a lot of our teaching about the Lord's Supper. And we'll be flipping back to it throughout this whole discussion. So if you want to keep a paper or a finger there, just so we don't lose it, um, that would be great. Before we start, though, could somebody uh, read, volunteer to read 1 Corinthians 11, just verses 23 to 26? This gives us, I think, a good summary of the Lord's Supper. So 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 26. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Thanks. Yeah, I think that gives us a good picture of what the Lord's Supper is supposed to be. I'll have some sort of initial thoughts here and then points two through four. I got some fill in the blanks for you, so get excited about that. Uh, you could probably already guess what goes in those blanks. But uh, so just sort of on point one here, just some general thoughts. Uh, you know, the Lord's Supper, it's a sacred tradition given to us directly by Jesus, given to the local church. And we should take it with celebration and with sobriety. What we're doing when we take the Lord's Supper, we're fundamentally preaching the gospel to ourselves. We're quieting ourselves and remembering the gospel. Do this in remembrance of me. Dave just read that, that remembrances of Christ and what he did for us on the cross. Uh, when we receive it by faith, uh, I think the Bible promises that we are growing and we're drawing near to Christ as Christ is drawing near to us. Uh, and that that process happens primarily through remembering what Christ has done for us and, and focusing on the gospel. So this first, uh, or I guess it's point two here, it's reflection on the past, reflection on the past. So these three points here, two through four, are sort of things that we should be doing as we're taking the Lord's Supper or aspects of the Lord's Supper, if you will. This doesn't necessarily capture everything that we can or should be doing um, in the Lord's Supper, but these are, these are three things. 
So the first one is reflection on the past, celebrating and remembering the gospel. Somebody, if you're still in 1 Corinthians, could you flip one chapter back to 1 Corinthians 10 and read verses 16 and 17? Somebody read that for us. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, this is, I think this is another example. We see to do this in remembrance of me, I think is probably the most explicit uh, instruction we have that we should be remembering the gospel and what Christ did for us when we're taking the Lord's Supper. But this is another one, right? It's a participation. It's called a participation in the, in the death and, and uh, of the participation in his body and in his blood, excuse me. Um, but just it, there should be a solemn, somber, and celebratory reflection on the work that Christ did for us. It's a reminder of the gospel. You don't have to turn there, but Luke twenty-two nineteen, one of the gospel accounts, that's where Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. In 1 Corinthians, obviously he's quoted doing, uh, saying that again. Um, but the Lord's Supper, it should be, and this is maybe the most obvious one, right? But it should be a formal rhythm of remembering the gospel of Christ's saving work for us. And it helps us as a church stick to gospel centrality. You know, by God's grace, I think our pastors here do a great job of uh, of preaching the gospel to us every single week. But another way that we hear the gospel regularly is through the Lord's Supper, right? It's through the elder presenting the elements and reminding us of the gospel, but also seeing the gospel visibly portrayed through the elements. So point three here, uh, this, you, you may be already be able to guess this, but for the fill in the blank examination of our present condition, the Lord's Supper should be an examination of our present condition. So Dave already read it, but 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven through 30, there's a requirement, I think it's in verse 28, to examine ourselves. Um, or I'm sorry, we haven't actually read this passage yet. Would somebody read 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven through 30? It's the passage, yeah, please. The passage right after what Dave read. Go ahead. Thank you. Yeah, so we see a requirement to examine ourselves here, and we also see some pretty serious consequences for people who are not examining themselves and are taking uh, the elements in an unworthy manner. So I guess a question to pose to the group is, in the context of these verses that we just read, what do you think it means that we should examine ourselves before taking the elements? Uh, We take the elements every second and fourth Sunday at this church, and this is a command to do before we take them. So what, what do you think this means to examine ourselves? Our thoughts, confessions, and actions as far as like, you know, how we've conducted ourselves and ensuring that they align with God's word. Like it's a simple way to put it. Yeah, so reflecting on our thoughts and actions. Um, yeah, examining. Any other aspects of that? Yeah, and I think it's verse 30 or 29 or 30 of what was just read there, but it also talks about discerning the body. And I think the way our elders think about that is discerning the body is sort of, it's, it's related to examining ourselves, but it's discerning whether we have unreconciled relationships with others. So kind of getting to that, that aspect of it. And uh, the passage you're referring to uh, while we're on it is Matthew 5, 23 and 24. This is, it's a, an analogous passage, but it talks about Um, If you bring a gift to the altar and you have an unresolved conflict um, with a brother, you should leave your gift on the altar and you should go and reconcile with that brother um, before you offer the sacrifice. And that's often used, you know, sort of as an analogy for discerning the body here and not to have unreconciled conflicts before you take the Lord's Supper. So that's definitely an aspect of it. Any any other thoughts on examining ourselves? What what that looks like, Andrew?
Yeah, I think that's that's definitely a part of it. Is yeah, are are we in unrepentant sin? Is there a sin that we're clinging on to in our heart that we're not repentant of? And if if so, then we should not partake in the Lord's Supper. But it's also a time of confession of sin, right? I think there's, I think if, if in examining ourselves we become aware of sin, God draws to our minds a sin that we haven't confessed and repented of. We also have a time in the service to do that, right? And if we do have a repentant heart and God brings something to mind, then we have a time before the Lord's Supper to confess and repent of that sin and then partake in the Lord's Supper. So I think confessing sin is probably part of, um, part of that examining ourselves also. Well, there's other things we could say about that. I, you know, one other thought on these passages, which are pretty stark about how you will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord if you take it in an unworthy manner. I think one of the things that this is teaching us is how serious the Lord's Supper is. I think another indication of this is that when we take the Lord's Supper, it will change us. It will, it will either help us to grow closer to God, our Savior, to Christ, by remembering his work on, on the cross and becoming softer to the things of God, or it will make us more callous. Um, we will take it in an unworthy manner. We won't care um, about the gospel. We won't care about our unrepentant sin. And so, you know, I think participating in a worthy manner, it leads to spiritual blessing and sanctification as we participate in this ordinance given to us by Jesus. So I think it just it highlights the importance, I think, either way um, of the Lord's Supper and the gift that it is for us. So thinking about discerning the body, thinking about examining ourselves, I guess one other question to raise. Does anybody have any example that they'd be willing to share about how God has used the time either our church or another church, before the Lord's Supper, of examining yourself to draw you closer to him or just use the Lord's Supper generally to draw you closer to him. Does anybody have any examples or, or stories they'd like to share about that? points there. I think, yeah, definitely taking it as a congregation. We'll talk about this uh, a little bit later under point C, but yeah, that's definitely a hugely blessing aspect of it. Does anybody have any other? Yeah. Great. 
along those lines, I've also heard you know from people where sins or unreconciled relationships were brought to their mind in that moment that they just hadn't even thought about before, um, and then they ended up not taking the Lord's Supper and reconciling that relationship. And so God used the Lord's Supper to bring things to their mind to actually lead to you know obedience of Him. So I think there's lots of different ways that that God can use this to draw us <coughs> closer to Himself. Uh, moving on to point four here, uh, looking toward the. Anybody have a guess? Future. future. Thank you, Dave. Yeah, <laughs> past, present, future. So looking, looking toward the future. Uh, Dave mentioned the verse or read the verse for us earlier. But every time we take it, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. And yeah, just thinking about yeah, just that passage until He comes. Just the confidence that we have <clears throat> that Christ is our hope as believers. We're looking forward to His return. We're looking forward to the future when we have a full feast with him, the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven. Revelations 19.9, Revelation 19.9, there's a few other passages as well. But just talking about that marriage supper of the Lamb that we have to look forward to. And even as we take our little uh, gluten-free bread clump and a little bit of juice, even just thinking about how much more joyous it will be to participate in the marriage supper of the Lamb with Christ in heaven, looking forward to his, his coming. And just, I mean, just stepping back and just the beautiful picture that it is that, it, that Christ came to the earth, took on a body, took on flesh, and then broke his body and shed his blood for us, and then gave us a meal so that we could remember it for the entire age until he comes and partake of that as a church and look forward to the certainty of his coming again. Um, I think it's just a beautiful picture and something to just, yeah, remind ourselves uh, of the gospel and not just the gospel in the past, some facts that we know about the past, but the future, the promise, the certainty that we have that Christ is coming again. Um, one, one song I think that helps do that for me, I don't know if it helps others, but we sing here is Behold the Lamb, the last verse of that song. It says, as, as we share in his suffering, we proclaim Christ will come again and will join in the feast of heaven around the table of the king. And just that, that picture and that hope that we have of Christ's return. Um, so, yeah, so these, these are just some of the things I think that we should be doing and thinking about as we take the Lord's Supper. Uh, point C here in the <clears throat> time that we have left, just sort of go through some of the practicalities of the Lord's Supper and hopefully have a little bit of time for questions. Uh, the elements that we take, uh, this is the most basic, it's a meal of bread and fruit of the vine. Luke 22, uh, 18 or 19 talks about the fruit of the vine. The bread represents the body of Christ. The fruit of the vine represents the new covenant and the blood of Christ. We could talk more specifically about what type of bread, what type of fruit of the vine, um, if you'd like. The, our, our church is not dogmatic about those things. We think, you know, the fruit of the vine encompasses both, you know, uh, juice and wine. We, we offer juice here, um, and we offer gluten-free bread here, too, as a as a way to um, allow us all to take one bread and one cup together so that we're not taking different elements, different people in the church. And that's in 1 Corinthians 10. It talks about the one bread and the one cup. So that's one of the reasons we do that, although, again, not dogmatic about the exact um, elements there. We'll talk more about that if you'd like. Frequency. This is another thing that's not, it's not crystal clear in Scripture exactly how frequently you have to take it. What our church does think is clear in scripture is that you should take it regularly and frequently. <laughs> and so what those words mean at our church, we end up taking it the second and fourth Sunday every month. Um, but, you know, we, we do think it is important that it is taken regularly. Uh, we're commanded to pray, to hear the word, to worship, and to take the Lord's Supper regularly. Acts 2.42, uh, we spent a lot of time <laughs> discussing that verse uh, in the spring uh, with, uh, yeah, going through our Acts series. But it says that the early disciples, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And so the breaking of bread there representing the Lord's Supper. It's one of the things that they devoted themselves to doing regularly. Uh, there's no explicit instruction on how often to do it. Why don't we do it more often? Or why do we do it so often, right? So I think people have views on both of those. Other churches I've been to have only done once a month, um, perhaps less frequently. Uh, we do think frequency is important, um, so, but feel free to bring that up with an elder if you think we should do it more, more often. <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily be opposed to that. <laughs> um, but I, it is a regular picture of the gospel in our lives and the church based on the life and rhythm of our church. Right now we do it second and fourth. 
so the local congregation here, this is a difference, I think, from other churches. Uh, our church's view on this um, is that the Lord's Supper should only be taken in the, in the, in the context of a local congregation. Uh, we see communion as intended to be done with the local body and not something that is to be done in private or in small groups. 1 Corinthians 10, 16 to 17, we read that earlier, but it says, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for all of us share in that one bread. And then going ahead to 1 Corinthians 11, 33 to 34, part of why there was judgment happening in the church um, in the context of this letter is because they were going on ahead and taking it um, out without uh, saving elements for other people in the congregation. And the explicit command in verse 33 is wait for one another and to come together to eat the supper all together. Um, and if you're hungry, you should eat at home so that you can be patient and wait and so you can all take the elements together. And so we think the, the pattern in scripture, um, the yeah, yeah, elders position, the church's position, is that it should be taken as a local church. It's part of this covenant community that we've been talking about, baptism as an initiation into that community. Um, and then Lord's Supper is something to be taken in the context of that community. A couple of other practicalities. Andrew got at this with the baptism, but who leads the Lord's Supper? Um, again, not, not crystal clear in scripture. Here at our church, we, we almost always have elders lead the Lord's Supper for similar, for similar reasons. Uh, it's an ordinance. It's, it's an act of the entire church where the gospel is proclaimed and made visible and the word is taught, right? Often they're reading and teaching from scripture, applying scripture. It's also part of their task as overseers to properly fence the table and to make sure that the congregation is taking it in a responsible manner. So that's why we have elders who lead the Lord's Supper. As far as who serves the Lord's Supper, the church's position is that any member in good standing at the discretion of the elders um, could lead the Lord's Supper. So the the last point here, fencing the table, um, who should take the Lord's Supper. Uh, you know, I don't know how much I need to say here because the elders do this every, every so you hear this every second and fourth Sunday, uh, what they do. Um, there are a few different <clears throat> elements to, to how they fence the Lord's Supper. I think we see from verses 27 to 30 why they fence the Lord's Supper, right? The, the, taking it in an unworthy manner has very serious consequences for us spiritually and even uh, potentially physically. Um, so some of the things that they say to fence the Lord's table or the, the Lord's Supper is that this is a meal for baptized believers who are in good standing with a local church. Um, and so they, all three of those um, elements will come out in their fencing at some point. Um, so baptized, believers, good standing with local church, and then not having unrepentant sin. I think that kind of is part of the being in good standing. Um, for believers in unrepentant sin, or for those who aren't believers, or for those who aren't baptized, it's a time to, I think, reflect on the commands of Christ and to remind um, ourselves of the gospel and to repent of sin or to be reconciled um, or to yeah, make plans to uh, talk with somebody about what it means to be a believer and those sorts of things. Um, so sorry that last bit was a little bit quick there but does anybody have any questions about the lord's supper anything i mentioned or or anything that we we didn't mention different churches have different views on a lot of the things that i mentioned so i'm happy to talk about anything Good question. Uh, so, if they're visiting, you mean not yeah, like? Yeah, like if they're, say, like somebody came, you know, are visiting us for the weekend and then they come and they take the Lord's Supper. Yeah. So, so if they were to be like, uh, you know, wanting to attend our church, thinking about becoming a member of our church, we would say that baptism was not effective, and they need to be baptized as a believer um, before they would take, start taking the Lord's Supper with us. That said, part of the fencing of the table is a little bit ambiguous on that point. Um, if you are a member in good standing with another local church that preaches the same gospel as us, then and you're baptized believer, then you're allowed to take the Lord's Supper. 
in their mind if they are baptized and a member of in good standing of the lo- of another local church and they're visiting then I don't think anybody would stop them from taking the Lord's Supper with us, um, especially if they're just visiting. I think if they were starting to attend more than once or more, you know, taking the Lord's Supper um, more frequently, I think that there would probably be a big conversation about, about baptism and about the need to be baptized as a believer. Um, but yeah, I think if, if it's, it's left a little bit, I think intentionally ambiguous so that you know, if in their own conscience, in their own minds, they are a baptized believer in good standing with the local church, then, then they would be able to, to, to take it as a one-off. But. Any other final questions before we... Yep. Actually, my daughter had a good question. Yeah. She wanted to know um, if, we, if you're homebound or maybe invalided and are not able to come to church, um, would elders or do elders then go to you? Since it's not something that, as you said, we should do just individually or on our own. Yeah, that's a really good question. Yeah, that's... So I think... Yeah, that person should obviously be reaching out to the elders and, and, and asking for guidance on that. I think, yes, uh, elders have gone and done the Lord's Supper with uh, homebound and invalid people, I think with other members as well. Uh, and so that, that would be a case-by-case exception to the general rule. Um, and so, yeah, if, if, it's, if there's sort of a physical impossibility, I think there are exceptions there. Uh, I know the elders are actually working on a new shepherd statement. <laughs> You're asking all the shepherd statement questions about the Lord's Supper, and this will be one of the things that they answer in, in the new statement that they're working on. But, but yeah, I think that's sort of a case-by-case exception um, that in the elders' discretion. All right, well... We are right on time here. Uh, just a reminder, if you have children in childcare, make sure to get them out <laughs> at 10. Um, but I'll go ahead and pray to close us out. So let, let's go ahead and pray. Dear God, we thank you for the ordinances. We thank you that Jesus himself gave us these two ordinances as a way to remember what he's done for us and to look forward to his second coming and to look forward to our resurrection um, that we yeah, are promised to be able to live with him forever. Thank you for these these signs that engage our bodies and help us to remember as feeble people uh, the work that you've done for us. Pray that you would help us to view them rightly. I pray that you would help us to be sober and celebratory about these signs you've given us. I pray as we observe baptisms that you would help us to remember um, the gospel and to yeah joyfully welcome people into our covenant community even today. And I pray that as we take the Lord's Supper that we would remember what you've done for us that we would examine ourselves and that we would look forward to your coming. Uh, We thank you for all that you do for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.